Again, this morning it will probably seem like Christmas in June. Or as we launch into this study of Matthew's Gospel, the first thing we come to are uh, the, um, the uh, things that we associate with uh, Jesus' birth at Christmas time. includes um, things like we have this morning, which is the story, the account of the visit of the Magi. But I must say that this part of the Christmas story, if we want to call it the Christmas story, this part of the, the, the life of Jesus is a bit mysterious, whether it's at Christmas or today. There's just a lot we don't know about this. We don't really know who these guys were. They were not kings, though we sing we three kings. They were certainly not kings. They were probably ancient astrologers, though the Bible speaks against astrology. We don't know their names. Though over the centuries, no less than 30 names have been suggested. We actually don't know where they came from, although the most likely thing is from Persia, I think. We don't even know how many of them there were. The Eastern churches, the Orthodox churches, say that there were 12. But then the Orthodox churches like 12 of everything. The Western church says three. There's no evidence for that except that there were three kinds of gifts brought. Neither do we know anything with certainty about the star they followed. It may have been a naturally occurring phenomenon. We know that Halley's Comet passed in 12 to 11 BC. That was probably too early for this. There's evidence of a nova appearing in 5 to 4 BC, but we can't prove that. Or it may have been a planetary conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter, which would have appeared in 7 B.C., maybe. Then again, it may have been a miraculous sign from God that uh, we don't have any explanation for. We just don't know. We also don't know exactly when they came. In our little nativity sets, we see the wise men coming, but the truth is they clearly uh, did not come to the stable It says in here that they came to a house. This was not the night of Jesus' birth. In fact, it may have been weeks, even months later. Uh, Later down in verse 16, Herod sought to kill Jesus by killing all the baby boys under two years old based on what the Magi had told him when they saw the star. This might have been months later. We just don't know. There's just a lot we don't know. So if God didn't make any of those things known to us, what do we know? Well, let's listen again and try to figure it out. First 12 verses, Matthew 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he, when he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. 
After they had heard the king, they went on the way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Well, we're going to try to not uh, speculate on things that we don't know about this, but to try to apply as well as we can what it does say here. Let me suggest three such things. First of all, that God has made it clear that Jesus came to be king. God has made it clear that Jesus came to be king. In recent years, many companies have been sued because of harm caused by their products. And in every case, the same question arises. When did you know that this was a problem? When was the evidence of potential harm in your hands? For if they knew it and ignored it, they're culpable. So when did they know? Well, here in the opening events of Matthew's gospel, God makes clear that his people knew early on that Jesus had come to be king. Remember, that was the question asked by the Magi. Where is he who was born king of the Jews? Now, amazingly, there seems to have been no question about that. Everyone seemed to know from the beginning. The Magi who saw the star, they never asked if a king had been born. They only asked where. And the scribes and chief priests who studied the scriptures They never questioned whether such a thing were possible or had occurred. They readily came up with the answer. And Herod, who had only to ask to find out the details, was immediately convinced that a king had been born. Indeed, he was so thoroughly convinced, he took action to destroy this king while he was still a baby. So how did they know? Well, the man's eye saw the star. Now, we know that the whole creation shows God's existence, but what exactly they saw that pointed them to Jesus, as I said before, is is a vast mystery. If they were from Babylon, which uh, they may have been, Babylon still had a Jewish settlement, a significant Jewish settlement, so they may have had some access to Old Testament predictions from the Jews in Babylon. But the point is that by whatever means, God made it clear that Jesus' birth was the birth of the king, they came asking, where is the one born king of the Jews? Then there are scribes and the, and the teachers of the law. Where did they, uh, how, what, what did they know? How did they know? Well, they had the scriptures. In fact, these guys were experts in the sacred text. So they knew immediately what the scripture had predicted. Out of Bethlehem will come a ruler, the shepherd of Israel. God made it clear to anyone who studied his word that Jesus came to be king. In contrast, we who claim to be the smartest people that have ever lived on the planet, we tend to claim ignorance. We hide behind intellectual problems, though few of us actually engage our intellect to examine the evidence. But God has still made it clear to those who honestly listen. Jesus came to be the king. In fact, Jesus himself promised, I quote him, if anyone will choose to do God's will, 
he will find out whether my teaching comes from God. In other words, Jesus did not promise he would satisfy every skeptic's curiosity. He promised to make the truth clear to those willing to follow it. God still makes clear that Jesus came to be king. That's the first thing we ought to learn. There's a second truth then. The coming of God's king brings out our rebellion. The coming of God's king brings out our rebellion. You know, generally we prize teamwork, common goals, shared responsibility, mutual support. In that context, the more the merrier. Many hands make light work. But there are some tasks that require a single leader. There may be many players on the team, but eventually the team needs a coach who's in charge. There may be hundreds of employees, but a company needs a boss who's in charge. And in those situations, when one person claims to be in charge, to be the ruler, suddenly all kinds of resistance and rebellion get stirred up. For we know that the claim to be in charge is an exclusive claim. It says silently, but certainty that every other, everyone else's claim to be in charge is not valid. The claim to be the king is such a claim. A country may have hundreds of leaders at many different levels, but there can only be one king. And so it is with Christ. The coming of God's king brings out mankind's rebellion. His claim to be God's appointed ruler is an exclusive claim. And every competing authority will tend to rise up in opposition to that claim. This, by the way, is one of the absurdities of modern Christianity. We tend to want to present a Christ who never makes exclusive claims, who readily accepts every other religious claim as equally true, who challenges no one's authority to defy him. In short, we presented Jesus who is simply one of many acceptable religious leaders, But that's not the Jesus of the gospel accounts. The real Jesus grew up to claim the prerogatives of God himself. The real Jesus claimed to be the embodiment of truth, the embodiment of the Godhead. And those claims which were already present in the writing of the prophets, those claims which are implied in the title king, those claims set every other authority in opposition to him. Herod understood this. He saw immediately the implication of Jesus being born king of the Jews. He saw that because Herod was already the one who had the title king of the Jews. He had received that title from Rome. He had spent years putting down enemies in order to make his rule possible. He had protected his his position By the slaughter when necessary of his own family. He killed his dearest wife. He killed two of his own sons. Herod was absolutely clear about the implications of Jesus' birth. His kingship, his sovereignty was at stake if Jesus was the king. And he would do everything necessary to protect his interests. Now you and I are nicer than Herod. Herod was a wretched man. But the issue is much the same with us as it was with Herod. There can only be one king. 
Jesus came claiming the right to rule over our lives. So for us to continue to rule our own lives, a position we fought for for years, for us to be the independent, self-sufficient, I bow to no one person that we envision, for us to continue to be the master of our fate and the captain of our soul, we, like Herod, must somehow dethrone Christ. And that's exactly what Herod set out to do, even though Jesus was a baby. Look at his response to this announcement. Verse 3, he was troubled. Verse 4, he inquired. Verse 7, he plotted. Verse 8, he lied. Verse 16, he was enraged and finally killed to destroy this threat. It was a man ferociously protecting his own interests. For if Jesus was born to be the king, then Jesus was his enemy. Herod must either submit to him or destroy him. Now, our natural response is the same as Herod's. We're no more neutral than he was. We're just more subtle. So our first strategy is to just ignore Jesus. Some of us have ignored him for years. But make no mistake, this is silent defiance. If if you're a parent, you probably understand this tactic, don't you? Your child who doesn't get in your face, is not sassy with you, he just ignores you and walks away to do what he pleases. Silent defiance. So we try that first. Or we may seek to dethrone Jesus by giving him some position or title, but one that will be subservient to us and our position. So we may let Jesus be the king of spiritual things, but we have no time for spiritual things, so in reality he's the king of nothing. Or we may acknowledge him to be a teacher, not a king, but a teacher. That makes it sound like he's important, but we're the ones that judge whether his teaching is worth listening to or not. Or we may defer his kingship to the future. He he will be king of heaven someday if there is such a place. But today, I'm in charge and I will live my life as I please. Or sometimes we're not even subtle about it. Sometimes we may openly rebel against Jesus' kingship with unmasked defiance. We reject his claims and defy his authority. We dare to even lead others into rebellion with us. Like Herod did. In all these ways, as we employ our clever tactics, we are living evidence that the coming of God's king brings out our rebellion. But folks, whatever opposition we attempt to mount, ultimately it's going to fail. Herod sent out his army. Herod caused great sorrow to thousands of people. But as we will see later, he only fulfilled prophecies concerning Jesus. Meanwhile, Herod died a failure. So we may defy Christ to our death, but his kingdom will still stand forever. There can be only one true Lord and King, and his name is Jesus. We may refuse to submit, but we cannot prevail. Finally, a third truth that we ought to learn from this account. Jesus, the king, deserves our worship. Jesus, the king, deserves our worship. We tend to think of worship as a religious feeling that 
that uh, arises in us sometimes. So many worship leaders attempt to set the mood for worship. I hate it, don't you? I don't want the mood set. But, but if, and if we don't feel it, well, then uh, we're not into worship. We don't feel anything. But our word worship, our English word worship, is not about feeling at all. It comes from the compound word worth-ship. Worship is the recognition of worth or value. So worship is simply giving the appropriate response to someone's worthiness. We read that the Magi worshipped. What did they do? What was their appropriate response to the worthiness of this one born king of the Jews? Well, it began when they saw the star and they dropped what they were doing and pursued the evidence. Then they journeyed. Perhaps a thousand miles they journeyed to pay him homage. They brought valuable gifts. Gifts appropriate to Jesus' identity. Certainly not to the humble setting in which they found him. They bowed down in humility. Though they were undoubtedly wealthy and noteworthy people in the world, And they did this in the face of the absurd realities which they could not explain. This king was a baby. This this, this baby's nation was in bondage to Rome. This child's home and parents were clearly not royalty. Nonetheless, the little truth which the Magi knew demanded that they respond in an appropriate way, in a way appropriate for a king whether or not Jesus was what they expected to see when they got there. They worshipped him because Jesus deserved to be worshipped as God's king. And he still does today. We know far more than the Magi knew. We understand this Jesus is God, very God, as well as man, very man. We understand that he perfectly revealed God to us. We understand that he died on the cross for sinners, that we might be forgiven and rose from the dead, that we might have eternal life. We understand that he has ascended into heaven and sits at God's right hand, where he is clothed with the royal glory uh, that, that is his due. And we understand that as surely as he kept God's promises in his birth, he will keep God's promises to return and judge the world. Oh, we know so much more than the Magi knew. But will we express his worthship in ways similar to the wise men? We understand, will we understand all that we can understand? Will we pursue the truth wherever it leads us? Will we bring our wealth and our lives bowing down to honor him and then rise to faithfully serve this king? Jesus is worthy of our worship. He is God's king. This account is familiar to us. We rehearse it again and again every year at Christmas. But its truths are applicable to us every day of our lives. First, that God has made it clear that Jesus is the king. No one who is willing to obey him will fail to know that that's true. He promises. Secondly, Christ's lordship is exclusive. He alone is king of kings and lord of lords, And that truth does bring out the sinful rebellion in all of us who want to rise up and be the king ourselves. 
And thirdly, Jesus, the King, is worthy of our worship. Our life, our time, our talent, our wealth, our all. This morning, I do not call you to follow Jesus because of the great benefit you will obtain. I call you to follow Jesus because he is God's true king, and he alone is worthy of your life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, there's so many things when we read this account in your word that we just do not know, we cannot comprehend. It raises all kinds of questions, and sometimes we get all locked into the questions And we miss the obvious things that we can understand. So help us today to hold on to those things that are clear and to walk in light of what you've shown us about our Lord Jesus Christ in in this passage. Father, where we've thought of Jesus as our buddy or as one of a a group of leaders or as just a teacher or a suggester of a way to go something less than the king, the ruler, the sovereign over the earth and over our lives, forgive us and teach us to bow in humble submission to him and walk in his ways. We ask in his name. Amen. If you'll find your bulletin, there's an affirmation of faith in there. This is part of a paragraph by the... Uh, from the Scots Confession of 1560, a confession of faith that is uh, associated with John Knox. Let's read it and make it our confession this morning. Together? When the fullness of time came, God sent his Son, his eternal wisdom, the substance of his own glory into this world, who took the nature of humanity from the substance of a woman, a virgin, by means of the Holy Ghost. And so he was born the just seed of David, the very Messiah of Christ. What a great announcement that is. Let's sing about it. Joy to the world, number 195. Stand as we sing.
blessing, and then we'll sing praise God from whom all blessings flow. Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Amen.